I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. Back together, bitches. Finally. <laughs> God, it's been so long. With special guest. Oh, Kyle Banfield. Oh. <laughs> now, and he's a special guest because I've only ever talked about him one time before, and I introduced him as my boyfriend. But this time, ba-bam, our listeners can't see it. But he's my fiance. Let Woo! me describe it to you. It is big, juicy, and sparkly. Y'all would love it. Anyway, welcome, Kyle. Thanks for coming on tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. Are you excited? I'm super. Do you even know what to expect? Not at a little bit. Before we get into this story, ladies, it has been so long since we have actually been together one-on-one <clears throat> at my place in the little nook. Yeah. You guys might notice, like our listeners, you might notice that our homebrew murder crew was actually in sync for once in like a fucking yeah. year, <laughs> yes. um, which is so great. Thank uh, goodness. We're so much better when we're together. We really are. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got wine. <laughs> we've got wine. We've got crime. We've got sexy time. And joints. Please don't leave out the joints. There's, there's eight Sorry, joint. mom. <laughs> a dad, apparently. <laughs> So do we have it? We do actually. Um, I only I only think that we need to address the one right now that's like the glaring elephant in the fucking room. And yes. then just leave it at that. Because that is the one that deserves the most um Can I not be the one to deliver it because I'm yeah. having a hard time with it anyway? So if you live in Alberta or Saskatchewan or I believe it's Manitoba, you would have received a emergency alert. Yeah, it was all three provinces. On Sunday from, well, an emergency alert just on your phone saying that the RCMP were in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Alberta had issued a dangerous person alert in response to a multiple stabbing incident reported on September 4th in multiple locations, including James Smith Cree Nations and Weldon, Saskatchewan. And it's so crazy because, like, this is coming off your homebrew episode where we were talking about the Amber Alerts, right? right. And in the, and we were discussing how you receive those on your phone. And mm -hmm. it's much the same way as you receive a tornado warning or any other sort of weather warning or something like that. So it comes through. And, I mean, myself, personally, I'm like, okay, like, I'm not thinking anything. Skies look pretty clear. They're smoky. But uh, then I see this come up yeah. and I'm like, what the fuck? And it was two, two, two different like alerts too, because yeah. there was a completely separate incident with another two men in a different. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know you guys. So this, this is why one, I can't talk about it. Yeah, and this one that happened on September fourth, um, the mass stabbing occurred in thirteen locations on the James Smith Cree Nation and in Weldon, Saskatchewan, um, in which ten people were killed and eighteen others injured. Um, and I think there was more because I think that they were just counting the ones that were ambulance yeah. to the hospital, not the ones who took themselves to the hospital. Um, but some of the victims are believed to have been targeted while others were randomly attacked, but the police aren't releasing any information on why they think that some were targeted or what that looks like. But basically um, I feel like he started within his reserve. They, they, sorry, they started within their reserve uh, and they had a few people that they had in mind. And then it was just a random rampage after that. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get cozy 
and get uncomfortable and get uncomfortable and let me tell you this one's gonna make you uncomfortable or at least creep out because i i went well into the evening researching this and i dreamt about it because oh, it was geez. so creepy there's just so many unanswered things so the mystery that i bring you this evening is over 87 years old now Old? how long now say that again it's 87 years old wow <laughs> there are so many questions in this unsolved mystery that have left to be answered and tonight i am going to tell you about the mystery of the murder of room 1046. it is a new year in kansas city missouri the date is January 2nd, 1935. A well-dressed and handsome young man checks himself into the hotel president. He tells the employee at the check-in desk that his name is Roland T. Owen and that he was from the Los Angeles area. He would request an interior room several floors up with no view. He checked in for one night and he wasn't carrying any luggage with him. The bellboy on duty, Randolph Probst, takes notice of this, but doesn't think much of it. He takes Roland to his room, making a mental note to himself about Roland's description. See, Roland was alone, roughly in his mid-twenties, has brown hair, a noticeable scar above his left ear on his head. He also had a cauliflower ear, which indicates to Randolph that maybe this guest is a boxer or maybe a wrestler. Roland was wearing a nice black dress coat. He was heavier set and carried with him only a hairbrush, comb, and toothpaste. Once let into his room, Randolph dismisses himself and carries on about his day. Okay. A hairbrush, comb, and toothpaste. Yeah. That's no it. fucking toothbrush? Yeah, nothing. That was it. A hairbrush, comb, and toothpaste. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Shortly after, it is noticed that Roland T. Owen has left his hotel room for the afternoon. So now because Roland's asked for a very specific room, he ended up getting one that wasn't completely clean before he went into it. So this is where housekeeper Mary Soptic enters the scene. Mary is also one of the key witnesses. And room 1046 just happens to be on Mary's rotation today. Mary enters the room prepared to clean it, but is surprised to find Roland is actually back and inside the room. Roland allows her to come in and finish her duties. But this is the weird thing. The room is completely dark. He has the shades completely drawn. The lights are all out, except for one tiny little lamp in the corner on a side table that lights the room. And he says to go about cleaning. So she does. So what was he doing? Was he like laying in bed or? He was just sitting. Sitting in a chair? Yes, sitting in just a chair. In a little dimly lit corner. One right. tiny little light. Like right? And then so she goes about. Toothpaste. She for Three items. <laughs> and she just goes about it as if nothing's okay. wrong. Yeah. Okay. And he continues to sit in this dark room as she cleans it. Eventually. As I'd be like, can I just sidebar there? Yeah. But that was me. If I was, is Mary, right? Yeah. If I was Mary and I was in that position, I'd be like, no, I'm quitting. This is too awkward for me. I quit. There's going to be a couple of employees that you say that about okay. in this case. Okay. Trust. So eventually Roland would actually leave Mary there to clean. 
only stating that he wanted his door to be kept unlocked because he, quote, had a friend that was going to be visiting very soon, unquote. Creepy. Mary took notice of Roland's demeanor. He seemed to be, quote, worried or afraid of something, unquote. Mary finishes cleaning the strange guest room. Later that very same afternoon, around 4 p.m., Mary once again is required to go back to room 1046, this time to deliver clean, fresh towels to Roland. He is there when she enters his room, and he is lying on the bed, completely dressed, in total silence, still in total darkness, and awake, just lying there on the bed. Bye. I'm done. That's Here's my resignation. All right. <laughs> how how Mary just like went about her day. I don't know. <laughs> she like delivers the towels, says see ya, <laughs> and then goes about her fucking I day. So uncomfortable. Well, I'm... right. Mary brings the towels in, and the only thing she notices is a note written on the bedside table. The note states, "Quote, Don." I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait, unquote. This would, right? And who's Don? (laughs) Because this guy's Roland, so so he says. So who's this Don guy now? It must be the friend that he's expecting. Right? This would not be the last time that Mary would find herself curious about the man in room 1046. The next day, January 3rd, 1935, Mary Soapdick signs into work for the day at Hotel President. She is tasked with once again checking in on room 1046 and the odd gentleman residing in it. She goes to the room at 10.30 a.m. to clean as well as provide clean towels and linens. The door to his room, which it's important to note, locks from the outside. Like, this is 1935. Shit's weird in hotels, right? Right. So this room locks from the outside. So she notices that it's locked. So she assumes Roland has gone out for the day. So she uses her key that she has to enter all the rooms so she can clean in the hotel. And is surprised to find Roland in the exact same position as the evening before. No, no, no. In the dark, fully clothed. Laying on the bed, completely silent. And she's surprised because, you guys, the door is locked and it's locked from the outside. So who locked the fucking door? It's Don. It's it, 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 fucking, it's always Don. <laughs> so obviously Mary's surprised because with the door being locked, she really wasn't expecting anyone to be inside. She continues to go about tidying the room. <laughs> she's very Mary, like, job. yeah. But then, weirder yet, the phone rings. What the fuck? Yep. And he answers it. All he says into the phone is, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, Don, I don't want to eat. Don, I just had breakfast. And then, after a quick silence, he reiterates it. He says, No, I am not hungry. Sounds like code. No means no, Don. So this shit's being a normal day in Mary's world. Mary leaves and goes about her work day once fucking again. <laughs> <laughs> like in the previous day, 
Later on in the afternoon, Mary had to take clean towels up to room 1046. After all, she had just taken everything out of there towel-wise, so she knew that she needed to bring more up. So it's about 4 p.m. and she goes back up. I'd be like leaving them right in front of his door, knocking and going. Like, yeah, I'm done sure. with you. This is weird. I'm uncomfortable. Well, right? But really, wouldn't you be curious, though? Not that curious at that point. <laughs> That's twice now. She's walked into the bedroom and he's been lying on the bed, fully clothed, in the dark, awake. Or at least he's fully clothed. I mean, yeah. <laughs> true, true. This is true, especially for later on in the story. Because oh, it doesn't God. end here, folks. <laughs> so at 4 p.m., she notices that the door is once again locked. But this time, she can hear the voices of two males behind the door. One with a rougher sounding voice that she doesn't recognize. So she knocks. The rough voice that was clearly not the voice of Roland, which she knows, is of another male. And he says, quote, who is it? Unquote. That's it. She's kind of taken aback. So she says, housekeeping. <laughs> exactly. I'm Mary and I'm bringing, I'm providing you with new towels. All of a sudden she hears the booming voice behind the door saying again, quote, we don't need anything, unquote. Now Mary finds this odd and it puts her a little bit on edge because she knows that there's towels needed in there and she doesn't recognize the voice and it feels tense. But once again, in Mary's world, she continues about her day and goes about cleaning other rooms. <laughs> Mary's like, I'm here to clean, yeah. and that's it. She's like a memory. Punch in at nine, leave at five. Mary's probably five. like, these fucking towels. I need to get these goddamn towels in here. So, you guys, this brings us to the next day, January 4th, 1935. A hotel operator now checks in for work at Hotel President first thing in the morning. And looking over the switchboard, she notices a phone that's been off its hook for a while without being used. So she sends up a bellboy to check in on the room and make sure that the phone gets put back on its receiver. What room? 1046? Room 1046. Couldn't be. And the bellboy is a familiar face. The bellboy we've met before, Randolph Propes. He was the one that brought him to Randolph or brought... Roland. Roland. Thank you. See, this is why I get confused writing. <laughs> Randolph and Roland. Was sent, so Randolph was sent back to room 1046 to fix the issue. When he arrives to the room, he notices that the door is locked with the do not disturb sign on the handle. Randolph knocks on the door. A voice is heard from the inside saying, quote, come in, turn on the lights, unquote. However, the door is locked and no one seems to be coming to the door to actually let Randolph in. Assuming the man inside is just intoxicated, he yells through the wall, quote, put the phone back on the hook, unquote. I'll piss off. He's, he's drunk. He's irritated by this shit, right? He's not really thinking anything's up. So he's slightly annoyed and he just leaves without ever actually seeing anybody from or in the room. So at 8.30 a.m., it's noticed by the same phone operator that the phone to room 1046 is still off the hook. 
So annoyed, she sends yet another bellboy up to handle the issue. This time it's a different bellboy. Enter Harold Pike. He would make his way up to the 10th floor. However, this time he would find something much more kind of odd and creepy. Harold goes to room 1046, the do not serve sign still on the door, and the door is still locked. He knocks. There is no answer. He knocks again. Still nothing. So Harold uses his key to make entry so that he can put the phone back on this goddamn hook. Oh, Harold. He's like, <laughs> I'm not pissing around here. Once inside, he sees Roland laying on his stomach naked, seemingly to be passed out, but he has a darkened stain surrounding him, his body on the bed. So with the only light coming in from the hallway this time, there's no dim light that's completely pitch black. Harold assumes this guy's just drunk and passed out in bed. Shit himself. He notices that the phone is knocked over on, like it's knocked onto the floor. It has a table and it's knocked over and it's clearly hanging off the hook. So he fixes this table, he fixes the phone, puts everything back, and he leaves. Oh my god. And he goes about his day. Wow. <laughs> a dark stain? Like, number one, it's like, okay, if you think that he shot himself, but like, a top, like, you smell that. Maybe he thought it was shitter piss and didn't want to clean it, yeah. so he left. Like, well, I finally see still- it, it didn't happen. All these people working here have probably been talking about this man for how long? How long has he stayed there now? Is it three days? It's two nights. Two nights. This is, it feels like a fucking eternity yeah, already. But, uh, <laughs> right? So they're probably all like down and getting fucking coffee at the water. Fucking, thing, whatever. I don't know, it's 1930 if they have one. I know. Anyways, <laughs> they're all talking about 1046 and this fucking weirdo, and then somebody gets assigned and they're like, fuck me, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so he's like, I'm in, I'm out, that's it. I'm doing only what I'm told to do, bare minimum. I'm not exceeding expectations. I will meet expectations, that's it. Now, Roland's been just left in this room, face down on his bed, and this bellboy has come in, fixed the phone, and left, okay? Around 10.30 a.m. the same morning, about two hours later, the operator once again notices that the phone in room 1046 is off the hook. How the fuck did that that happen? Well, right? That's fucking creepy. Nope, 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 nope. So annoyed, again, she thinks, drunken idiot in this room, whatever. She asks the bellboy, go up and figure out what is going on. This time it's Randolph Probst. So the first the one, OG. the OG, the OG, the OG BB, bellboy. So Randolph <laughs> goes to the room. Obviously. We all know how this is going to go. Still locked, still no answer, still has a do not disturb sign on the door. And so since no one answered this time when Randolph knocked, he lets himself into room 1046. What he would find this time would open a mystery that have left people asking who done it. When Randolph entered the room, it was once again dark inside. As he opened the door, he felt it come up against something as if something was behind the door. He was able to kind of like wiggle his way. Wriggle or wiggle, by the way? Um, Both, I'd say. You could do wriggle or wiggle. Depends where you're at. Wriggle an actor. Depends where you're at in your life. Like your mental, emotional health. Well, then I'm going to say... 
wiggle. It just comes wiggle. naturally. <laughs> I don't know. I, what I, was, I, I don't know what that says about where I am in my life. I but... I guess we're in two different parts. Fine. <laughs> was way into the room. Thought we were friends, but <laughs> thought we did everything together. Not this, apparently. Apparently not this. Okay. <laughs> apparently, I'm wiggled and you're wriggled. <laughs> I lost my spot. <laughs> Wriggle back into it. Wiggle back into Wiggle it. Wiggle your way back in. Wiggle your way back into it. Wiggly, sugar-free gum. Roland enters the room, and on the floor, he sees the man on his knees and his elbows holding his head in his hands. Randolph notices that there is some blood coming from the man's head. He then, quote, turned the light on. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me, and I immediately left the room and went downstairs to report it, unquote. Roland had significant injuries all over his body. It looked as though he had been tortured. Roland was tied with a cord around his neck, his wrists, and his ankles. He had blunt force trauma to his head, which included a fractured skull. He was stabbed several times in the chest, uh, causing one of his lungs to actually puncture. He also had bruising around his neck. And it had looked as though he had been strangled. So it looked like the cord that he had wrapped around, it looked like someone was yanking on it, Mm -hmm. pulling on it. But despite all of his injuries, Roland was still alive. Fuck, poor bastard. So first responders and detectives come out to the scene. Uh, and they couldn't really believe what it was they were seeing, but they did take this opportunity to ask this very beaten man some questions in, in hope of finding out who did this to him. Mm-hmm. I bet it was Harold. Like, <laughs> you can't hang up the phone, I'll uh, hang you up! I'm still on Mary. Mary with the candlestick in the hotel room. <laughs> so, one detective asked, quote, was anyone else inside the room, unquote. Quietly and very clearly struggling to even talk, Roland said one word. Nobody. What? What the fuck? When asked what happened, Roland responded with, quote, I fell against the bathtub. Oh, what the fuck, man? Bitch. There was one more brief exchange. The officers asked him if he tried to commit suicide. In a brief response, Roland answered no. He was then taken off to the hospital, where shortly after midnight the next day, January 5th, 1935, the man known as Roland T. Owen would fall into a coma and shortly pass away from his injuries. Later on in the hospital, it would be determined by doctors that the victim's injuries had happened six to seven hours before he was actually discovered. So this means when the first, like when the like the phone was first off yeah. the hook, he was already in that state. in that state. 
In Roland's room, 1046, investigators are doing their thing. They're collecting their evidence, right? The only weird thing, there's nothing in the room. And I don't mean just like no belongings because it, it's noted that he didn't yeah. come with my, but there's like no shampoo bottles. There's no. Like the regular toiletry things. The regular things have. that would be but in a hotel. And Mary couldn't collect the old towels that she previously brought up. Yes, because nobody would answer the door. But but then everything else is also clear. Why would you take a fucking shampoo bottle? But exactly. Well, to get rid of of the room, to get rid of evidence. Well, what would you do? What are you? Why are you touching shampoo? This is 1935. Who knows? (laughs) Right? Like who knows? Really? That's the impression. But okay, okay, okay. There is a very interesting fact that I do need to bring up. There is one piece of evidence. (gasps) That police are able to collect, and it only adds to the fucking weird ass puzzle of this case. They find four fingerprints on the telephone that don't belong to the victim and are clearly tiny and petite, and look of that of a female. Further investigation would, in fact, bring another witness into play a hotel guest staying on the same floor as Roland on the evening of January 3rd, was trying to fall asleep in room 1048, only a couple of rooms down. Mm-hmm. They recalled hearing loud, angry voices coming from down the hall, and it sounded like two men and a woman. They recalled it clearly because they used a lot of profanity, and it made her uncomfortable. It was a noticeable event. More investigation was done into Roland T. Owen. And as you may remember, he mentioned at check-in that he was from L.A. But investigators went to the LAPD or the Los Angeles Police Department. And lo and behold, there was no record of a Roland T. Owen in the Los Angeles area. It soon became clear that this was an alias. The only other piece of useful information came from bellboy Randolph Probst. He mentioned that as the two walked to his room the first night when he first checked in, Roland had mentioned he was staying at the Mulebeck Hotel, also in Kansas City. And he had, quote, left because of high prices, unquote. Further investigation with the Mulebeck Hotel investigators discovered that there was no Roland T. Owen checked in there. However, the staff did recall a man of Roland's description. They mentioned that he had checked in under the name Eugene K. Scott, also gave an L.A. address, or said L.A. was his residence, mm-hmm. and requested a room on the interior of the building with no view. Again, however, after investigating, the LAPD reported that there was no one by the name of Eugene K. Scott in their city. So who is this man? Why is he there? And what the fuck is with all this weird and creepy fucking behavior? And the question I'm sure in everybody's mind, who who did this to him? For the first while, there are little answers to who this dead man in room 1046 is, let alone how he ended up in such brutal condition. His picture and his story makes headline news and is talked about near and far. 
Articles are printed about him in newspapers and magazines trying to find out who this John Doe belongs to. It won't be until March when the unknown man known as Roland is sitting in his funeral home waiting for his funeral. Yeah. Well, when waiting to be claimed by really anybody. And it would be on March 3rd when finally Kansas City Journal would print an ad and state that they're basically giving up and he's going to be rest, uh, put to rest in a potter's field. Shortly after releasing this article that this is what's going to be done with this unknown man, the funeral home receives an anonymous call. On the other line is a male voice and he says that he's going to pay for the funeral and that a real funeral would be had and all expenses would be paid by him and that they could ex- they could expect this money uh, to be received. So sure enough, a few days later, bundled in newspaper is enough money to pay for the expenses of a funeral. So they have the funeral. No one shows up. There's no one there but police officers, basically, like all the officers, detectives, everything. Mm-hmm. They're the pallbearers. They're everything. No citizen actually shows up for this okay. funeral. Okay, can I just interject and make like um, a true crime brain sort of analysis of that? Yeah. If somebody's making a show of this. Somebody's making a show. That's not guilty? That just wants to capitalize? or mm, I'm, It doesn't, I don't know. That's the question. Are they guilty? And that's why they're making a show of it because they're sick and twisted that way. Or are they just bored (laughs) at home wanting to be like the 1935 version of a troll? And like to me, it doesn't (laughs) feel like, like based on the demeanor of this man and the unknowing of who this man is and everything, it seems more that his murder, that his murder, what? This murder is like <laughs> this underground thing of like there's more to it that's unknown, like drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, right? But time out, time out. We gotta get before we start talking theories, we need every piece of the okay. puzzle. Of course, fine. But calm down, ladies and gentlemen. Calm down, Kyle. Calm down, Kyle. Way too raw. Too many opinions. Too many. Okay. Too wriggly so, over here. <laughs> If that wasn't odd enough, there was 13 long American Beauty roses that were also ordered and paid for and specifically asked to put on this grave. It came with a card and the card read, quote, love forever, Louise, unquote. Who the fuck is Louise? Now who the fuck is Louise? Who's your mom? So now we've got this Don character that he's referenced a million times at this hotel that no one really knows who he is. This random anonymous caller that paid for the funeral. And this random Louise. Louise is a front. 100% Louise is a front. Oh, it's gotta be. Anyways. So now that we've recapped that, the main question still is who is Roland T. Owen? How do these people know him? Do they actually know him? And who murdered him in the hotel? It wouldn't be until a year and a half later in mid-1936 when one of those questions would be answered. 
enter the next piece of the puzzle, Ruby Ogletree. Ruby is given a magazine by a friend randomly one day, the American Weekly. And inside this magazine is an article about Roland's mysteriously and quite frankly freaky ass fucking case. Beside the article is a picture of the unknown man that we know as Roland T. Owen. Immediately, her eyes go to the noticeable scar above his left ear on his head. It's her son. No fucking way. Ruby Ogletree lived in Birmingham, Alabama when her 17-year-old son, Artemis Ogletree, decided to leave home and hitchhike to California in 1934. So it had been over a year since she had actually physically seen her son. However, it was not the last time she had heard from her son, Artemis. He would occasionally write home. And when I say write, I mean write, like longhand writing. Because Artemis didn't know how to type or how to use a typewriter. This is important. I'm not just bringing this up just because this is important. Because Ruby continued to receive letters from Artemis well into the summer of 1935. So considering he died in January of 1935, the fact that the letters came from a dead man was not the only okay, thing. Okay, now it's giving P.S. I love you. <laughs> Who's writing the letters if he's dead? Exactly, because she is receiving letters that are from Artemis, right. but they're typed on a typewriter. Oh, so they eventually yeah. go from being handwritten oh, to being on a typewriter. And it just so happens it lines up. That's sus. Besides that, Mary did tell investigators that it didn't sound right. The tone of the letters was off, that it was, quote, slangy and unfamiliar, unquote. Mm. So now it's pretty well confirmed by Ruby that Roland T. Owen is, in fact, her son, Artemis Ogletree, because of his very noticeable and very mm. identifiable scar. So if he did, in fact, he did die in January. So who is exactly sending these letters? Ruby is able to help the investigation further when she gives the name of another hotel that she knew that Artemis stayed at because he was sending her letters. Mm -hmm. It was the St. Regis Hotel in New York City. Okay. The only other information come from that was that he stayed there with another man Named Donald Kelso. Don Kelso. Kelso. <laughs> fuck, guys. Die. <laughs> Duh. Okay, but here's the thing, you guys. Investigators take that name and once again look L.A., Kansas, New York. There is no person by the name of Donald Kelso or Eugene, whatever I said. Like they have literally. Like a dozen different aliases <laughs> listed, it gets confusing. It's weird. So the lead goes cold after that. So here we are. Now there's really nothing much else other than to discuss theories. Uh, and before I get into what I think actually was most likely what took place, we're going to go down a couple of those million little rabbit holes that we've kind of already been going down. 
So theory number one, one of the more popular ones, is that this mysterious Dawn uh, was a lover, and it was a lover's quarrel mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right? But here's the thing. What about that argument with the woman's voice? What about the woman's fingerprints on the phone receiver that was constantly being knocked off? And the girl that left right? flowers. It leaves. It, it, exactly. Well, we don't know that they were women's fingerprints. We just know that they were dainty, right? Like small and petite. small, petite in yeah. size. We yeah, we don't know for sure that they were female, but they were presumed to be. So theory number that kind of leads into theory number two. Theory number two is that uh, John was a lover, and there was uh, he involved another person, maybe by chance a fiance, maybe a woman who just found out her husband was having an affair with a married man. Maybe. So can his mother speak to any relationships? No. Okay. No, He's that's the thing. Years, right? But I mean, this theory, like Don involved with a woman accomplice, like that supports the whole, the fingerprints, right? And the argument. Uh, there was actually what I didn't say. There was another lead given to an officer from the elevator operator because 1935, you've got the person that right. lets people up and down the stairs, right? Uh, he did take note that there was two uh, guests walking along the 10th floor on the same day of the murder, and it was an unknown man and an unknown woman, and the woman looked to be professional, well-keep, so did the man, uh, but they didn't appear to actually be guests at the hotel. Uh, the leap never went anywhere. It didn't appear to be guests are just casually walking around but, the 10th fucking floor. Yeah. The lobby, I get. Yeah, but you have to remember, this isn't a time of videos or anything right. like that. So they're just going off of what people are saying. Yeah. So this supports, this witness supports that, okay, there was a female involved, maybe because there was two unknown people walking along a floor of a hotel but how strong of a lead is that really mm -hmm. right? right so it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't bring anything one of the last theories i'm going to bring to the table and honestly i think it's probably what most likely happened uh it's you can't for sure for sure say yes this is what happened i feel like in an alternate universe, maybe we could just be like, yeah, no, this is what happened because mm -hmm. duh, yeah. or sorry, the doi. The doi. <laughs> the doi. So in 1937, New York City police arrest a man by the name of Joseph Martin on a completely different murder charge. But there are some eerily similar things between this murder case and what happened to Artemis Ogletree. So Joseph Martin was arrested in New York after he killed a man that he was sharing a room with, put his body in a trunk on a tr like train and mm -hmm. sent it to Memphis. <laughs> so he did that and he's being, he's like, send it. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's, so he's arrested and actually like charged and everything with this man's death. But that's not the weird thing. Joseph had several different aliases, but one stands out to investigators. But Donald. Don. Donald Kelso. No what? way. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. So it was Donald Kelso or whatever the fuck his name Serial killer? Joseph Martin, the one that we're talking Joseph about. Martin. And who used the alias Donald, Donald Kelso. Yeah. Yes. So he's 
he's only ever charged with this other murder. He is never charged or convicted in Artemis Ogletree's case. So today, the whodunit aspect of this mystery is not actually closed. Yeah. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. But what happened that night in room 1046, I think in my heart and in my gut, I feel it's safe to say it was a lover's quarrel. So yeah, you guys, listen, all these questions that you have running through your head right now, I have had running through mine, and I have tried for myself to answer them all. But when bringing the case, like we always try to stick to the case and the facts and all that kind of stuff. And there are quite a few uh, rabbit holes you can go down that lead to, yeah, no, it's bogus kind of thing. So take from this what you will. Take what theory makes you most comfortable or will help you sleep tonight. (laughs) I don't need a lot of help sleeping. (laughs) No, we've we've had wine. (laughs) We're medicated and we have wine. To our listeners, if you guys have heard of this story before and if you have your own theories or you've heard a theory that you think suits, we'd love to hear from you. You can catch us on our social medias. We are... On Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. We are on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. And you can also email us at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. And thanks to Kyle for sitting in with us and joining today. We appreciate you being a guest. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It was great to great to see how uh, how these things are made. Did you enjoy your beer? I enjoyed all the beer. Did you enjoy the story? <laughs> the story was creepy. Good. Yeah, I still think Harold and Mary did it. <laughs> Together now. Oh, with right. the candlestick in room 10. They're, they're in cahoots. Oh, yeah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here for the night. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.